Some people say that if voting really mattered, they wouldn't let us do it. But here's the thing, they don't let all of us. Hey everyone, my name's Madiba, and I'm an attorney who fights for social justice. You're listening to my podcast, Bard and Bougie. Bard and Bougie breaks down law and politics in a way that makes sense for law people and lay people, and centers those of us who get pushed to the margins. For any new listeners, welcome. And for older listeners, welcome back. Let's get started. This week, I want to talk with you all about voter suppression. Yesterday was election day for the congressional midterms and for statewide and local positions from governor to board of education member. You probably heard a lot then about the need to get out the vote. For the record, I completely agree. But what we don't talk about often enough is how huge swaths of people can't go out and vote. Millions of American citizens are systematically excluded from the polls. This episode, I'm going to talk about the shoddy state of voting rights in this country, some of the legal underpinnings of how we got here, and what we can do about it. Basically, if you can vote, you should, but it might not be easy. Also, there are a lot of different types of barriers to voting, so in the interest of time, I'm going to focus on a few that I find to be the most glaring and shameful. One of the clearest examples of voter suppression is felony disenfranchisement. Felony disenfranchisement is a process of excluding people from voting who would otherwise be able to vote because they were convicted of a criminal offense. If you recall from episode 4 of Bard and Bougie, which focused on the nationwide prison strike, voting rights was on incarcerated people's list of demands. Felony disenfranchisement laws vary from state to state. Maine and Vermont, for example, are the only states that allow people with felony convictions to vote, including those who are in prison. But there are 12 other states that say a person cannot vote even if they've served their prison sentence, are no longer on probation or parole, and have essentially reintegrated into their communities. Between the 48 states with some kind of disenfranchisement policies, There are 6.1 million Americans who can't vote because of a felony conviction. It's worth noting here that felony disenfranchisement reproduces the injustices of America's criminal system. If you overly police and incarcerate people of color and low-income people, and then you say incarcerated people can't vote, you take away the political power of the poor, the black, and the brown. Shockingly, One of every 13 African Americans has lost their voting rights because of felony disenfranchisement laws. In Florida, Kentucky, Tennessee, and Virginia, more than one in five black adults are disenfranchised. As mass incarceration increases and prisons fill their cells with black and brown bodies, these staggering numbers will likely rise as well. Mass incarceration even disenfranchises people who haven't been convicted of anything, since many people are held in jail while they're awaiting trial. These folks may already be legally eligible to vote, but they often can't access information about voter registration and voter materials. Seven states also prohibit people from voting if they owe any debts or fines to a court. This means that rich people can pay off a debt and have no problem voting, but low-income people are told that they're too broke for the ballot. In each of these examples, 
The criminal justice system intervenes in the lives of low-income people and people of color, and unfairly keeps us from participating in elections. This exclusion of marginalized people prevents us from having a representative government. One study has found that racial disparities in incarceration and health result in millions of Black people simply missing from the electorate. That's the type of number that could determine who wins elections, who gets to make the policies that affect our lives, and whether those policies will fight for us or against us. But that can't happen if our numbers aren't counted. Because these laws are on a state-by-state basis, we can and should push for legislative changes on local levels, whether that means getting rid of bad laws or adding new, better ones. For example, folks in Florida voted last night for a constitutional amendment that will return the eligibility to vote to formerly incarcerated Floridians who have completed the full term of their sentence, excluding those convicted for murder or felony sexual offenses. 1.4 million people with past convictions in Florida just got their voting rights restored. This is the largest expansion of voting rights in decades. Legislation like Amendment 4 would be a useful first step towards fighting voter suppression in your communities. These incarceration-related restrictions are a little unique in my opinion, because nowadays, most voter suppression doesn't look like explicit blanket exclusions of whole classes of people. Instead, we see things like voter ID laws, voter roll purges, polling place closures, and so forth. Requirements and hurdles like these appear neutral on their face, but actually function to keep us from exercising our right to vote. To make matters worse, a 2013 Supreme Court case called Shelby v. Holder struck down a core component of the Voting Rights Act. Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act was one of the primary mechanisms for protecting marginalized people's right to vote. But in the aftermath of Shelby, it's been rendered virtually useless. We're still dealing with the consequences of that decision. I'll explain, starting with some quick legal history to set the stage. In earlier episodes and on the Bard and Bougie Facebook page, you've heard me talk about the Reconstruction Amendments, These are the constitutional amendments that came after the Civil War and were supposed to tell us about the legal status of Black people after slavery. Among these is the 15th Amendment. The 15th Amendment says that the government cannot deny or abridge U.S. citizens' right to vote because of their race, color, or previous condition of servitude. Hooray! Black people can vote now! LOL jokes, not quite. First of all, they only meant black men. Even white women couldn't legally vote yet. And second of all, there were mad obstacles standing in between black men and the ballot box. There were poll taxes that black people couldn't afford. There were literacy tests that were virtually impossible to understand, so black people couldn't pass. There were grandfather clauses that said you could vote if your grandfather could vote before the Civil War, which obviously excluded black people. And there was, of course, violence and voter intimidation by groups like the KKK. By the way, poll taxes didn't become unconstitutional until the 24th Amendment was adopted in 1964. Think about how recent that is. If it's not your lifetime, I'm sure it's your parents' lifetime. I tell you all this to say, as long as Black people have been able to vote, people have tried to stop us from voting even with the 15th Amendment. 
So, in 1965, at the height of the Civil Rights Movement, Congress sought new measures to eliminate racial discrimination in voting, namely the Voting Rights Act. Congress recognized that case-by-case lawsuits brought under the 15th Amendment weren't cutting it, because voter suppression was way too widespread and entrenched for that to be effective. Congress also recognized a need for federal oversight, and to shift the burden from the folks being discriminated against to the governments doing the discriminating. They met that need through Section 5, which said certain states and local governments that had the worst histories of discrimination as determined by Section 4B had to get approval from the Department of Justice or the D.C. District Court before they could make any changes to their voting practices or procedures. This is commonly known as preclearance. This is basically the Fed's way of saying, look, y'all ain't slick. You and I both know that you're always up to something to weaken the political power of people of color, especially if that color is black. Whenever you're thinking about some new shenanigans, run it by us first and show us you're not making trouble. For decades, when shenanigans ensued, Section 5 was there, making sure local governments had to spend their time and money to show that a proposed voting change wasn't going to be discriminatory, and stopping shady policies before they could harm voters. Fast forward to 2013, Shelby County, Alabama was salty about having to run their plans by the court every time they wanted to make a change. We're good now, we promise, they said, with their fingers crossed behind their backs. And the court was sympathetic to this argument, stating in the majority opinion that we can't just rely on and punish these governments for their past behavior, and finding that Section 4B, the part that determined which jurisdictions are covered, was out of date and didn't respond to current conditions in voting. This is basically the, we had a black president, so racism is over approach. Meanwhile, RBG writes this scathing dissent, like, are y'all kidding me? Preclearance has blocked literally thousands of discriminatory would-be changes over the past 40 years. Why would you get rid of it? This is like throwing away your umbrella in the middle of a rainstorm because you're not getting wet. But RBG's bars aside, the majority struck down 4B. And since Section 5 relies on 4B to say which jurisdictions need preclearance, Section 5 can't do anything. After Shelby v. Holder, local governments raced out of the gates like some kind of disenfranchisement Kentucky Derby, and they were all trying to see who could discriminate the fastest. Congress has the power to come up with a new preclearance formula and breathe life back into Section 5, but no one seems to be in any rush to do so. We should rush them. Just ask Georgia. Georgia is one of the states that used to be subject to the Voting Rights Act preclearance requirement, and it's a hotbed of voter discrimination today. Without Section 5, Georgia didn't have to check with the feds before they closed 214 polling places across the state, which probably contributed to those obscenely long lines people were in last night that discouraged voter turnout. Georgia didn't have to ask before they cut early voting hours, limiting the opportunity of folks who don't work flexible hours or have to find childcare from engaging in the political process. Lawsuits actually had to be filed today for today to get a court order to keep the polls open for more hours because the lines were so ridiculous. As Georgian voters had the opportunity to elect their first black governor, 
It's more than a little suspicious that tens of thousands of voter registration applications got put on hold, 70% of which were from Black would-be voters. And let's not forget that this is all being managed by Georgia Secretary of State Brian Kemp, who was also running against Stacey Abrams for governor. Given the extent of the discrimination and shadiness, voting rights reporter Ari Berman has called Georgia the epicenter of the voter suppression battle. As members of this Democratic project, we have to ask ourselves, how is this election in Georgia legitimate? How is the election in North Dakota legitimate? How are any of our elections legitimate when millions of us have our votes denied and diluted? The examples I've provided are only the tip of the iceberg. Voter suppression is vast and varied. The one constant, though, is that this sort of discrimination does a disservice to would-be voters and to the entire electorate, which is also prevented from having a truly representative government. Democrats need to make addressing voter suppression a priority. I say Democrats because, let's be real, It's Republicans who frequently implement and benefit from discriminatory voting laws. Quite frankly, the more of us that can vote, the worse chance conservatives have to win. Republican leaders have literally admitted that if the voting populace goes down, their leverage goes up. During the 2012 presidential race, for example, a Pennsylvania House Republican was caught on tape saying that their voter ID law was strategic to help Mitt Romney win. Thanks, candid camera. We need to urge our elected representatives to push for policies that support voters and fight to get voting issues on our ballots. There are also some great organizations you can support that work against voter suppression, like the NAACP Legal Defense Fund, Let America Vote, and Vote Writers. I know after hearing all this, you may think, what's the point of voting at all? But voting can still have a real impact, especially at the local levels. At the very least, it can determine the conditions under which we fight. I don't think voting is the end-all be-all, but I think liberation requires using every tool in your toolbox. And voting is the biggest tool you have in a democracy. Or at least, whatever this is that calls itself a democracy. Thanks so much for listening. I hope you all learned a little something about voter suppression in this country and feel at least a little inspired and empowered to fight against it. If you like what you're hearing, please remember to subscribe and share. You can also give me feedback by rating episodes and leaving comments. I saw some lovely reviews the other day that just lifted my whole spirit. Bard and Bougie is available on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, and Podbean. Transcripts and other updates are on the Bard and Bougie Facebook page. Also, it's starting to get cold out there, so warm up with an official Bard and Bougie long sleeve shirt or mug for your hot chocolate. All that and more is available at teespring.com slash Bard and Bougie merch. All right. Thanks again, friends. Tune in for a new episode real soon.